Welcome to Odeon Capital Conversations on all things money and markets with Dick Beauvais and Matt Van Alstyne. And here is your host, John Aiden Byrne. On this episode of Odeon Capital Conversations, Dick Beauvais will present an account of the immense off-balance sheet debt of the U.S. government, a sum that far exceeds the U.S. national debt of over $31 trillion dollars. What is the possibility of the U.S. government returning to a future round of easy money printing and what would set it off? Matt Van Alstyne will share his analysis and thoughts. We look at where money is moving in an environment of rising interest rates. We look at the U.S. dollar as a reserve currency and we'll also look at the war in Ukraine and rate our leadership during these challenging and war-torn times. I'm with Dick Beauvais, Chief Financial Strategist at Odeon Capital Group and Matt Van Alstein, Odeon Co-Founder and Managing Partner. And we'll be right back after this message. Current and future holdings are subject to risk and past performance is no guarantee of future results. This podcast should not be copied, distributed, published, or reproduced in whole or in part. Information presented herein is for discussion and illustrative purposes only and is not a recommendation or an offer or solicitation to buy or sell any securities. Securities identified do not represent all of the securities purchased, sold, or recommended to clients. The views and opinions expressed by the Odeon Capital Group speaker are their own as of the date of the recording. Any such views are subject to change at any time based upon market or other conditions and Odeon Capital Group disclaims any responsibility to update such views. These views should not be relied on as investment advice, and because investment decisions are based on numerous factors, may not be relied on as an indication of trading intent on behalf of any Odeon Capital Group product. Neither Odeon Capital Group nor the speakers can be held responsible for any direct or incidental loss incurred by applying any of the information offered. Dick and Matt, welcome for episode 58 from a snow-covered northeast uh, we're digging out here, Dick, and plowing out all morning, but I'm sure it's sunny in Tampa. We have a lot to talk about. Uh, the markets opened down this morning. Um, it was a bad month for stocks. Um, we could get into why. Last episode, we finished on a kind of a discordant note, but we tend to emphasize the positive and the upside and investing concepts. Matt brought up, and we got a lot of reaction to it at the end of the uh, show, um, a seeming disparity, if you will, between government numbers, published debt numbers, and then the spending um, during COVID. They were sort of widely off the mark and then dick you came back and said we are in a worse financial shape uh, than many people imagine as i said it got a huge reaction and and you you looked at some numbers and some studies which shed more light on this um i i will just note that the wharton school i think it was last year published a, a detailed study also saying that there was 244 trillion of a fiscal imbalance in government finances. But you dig deep into this and share what you found, Dick. Well, well basically, uh, there, there are a number of places that one can go. The University of California is doing a pretty good job in this area. The Bank of International Settlements is uh, doing a, a, a job uh, here. Wharton, uh, you know, and, and there have been studies out of the United States government itself, which touch upon the subject. And the subject 
basically deals with the fact that the United States, you know, guarantees the debt of multiple entities uh, that, you know, then go out and pursue, you know, their activities. And, And I'll spend a little time on one just because I know that one in detail uh, and, and, you know, show you how it happens. But if, if you break down the areas uh, where the United States has got huge guarantees, it's the housing market is, is, is one tremendous area. Uh, student loan guarantees are another area. Uh, all sorts of insurance on bank uh, deposits and other banking activities is another. Uh, the Social Security Fund is another. Medicare is another. Then there are a variety of government trust funds. There are, you know, defense organizations that uh, are in, that, that we, we get involved with. There are commitments that we make uh, overseas that are there. Uh, and so w- when you take a look at all of these various areas, uh, if you're the University of California, you might say that the, the true debt of the United States is six times the, the number that the uh, stated debt is. If you take a look at the Bank of International Settlements, they may say it's three times, but what, whatever, you know, it's, it's, it's huge relative to what the current debt published of, of the United States is. And uh, if you take a look at what you implied in the Wharton study, there is no intention to attempt to match uh, assets with liabilities. And if we, we attempted to match assets with liabilities, uh, it, it, it would show that the United States has got a massive negative net worth. And, and that's why, you know, when you see the published, you know, deficit numbers, they really coincide with the increase in in the debt number. So so how does this happen? You know, since we do a lot of work on Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac, and since Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac are $7 trillion or almost $7 trillion of uh, debt to the United States government, which is not on the United States government's balance sheet, how, how, how did they work that out? I mean, the United States government has, you know, direct investment and warrant positions in Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac, which give them ownership of 79.9%, apparently some accounting issue there, 79.9% of uh, these two companies. There are other obligations that these companies have, which would argue that the government really owns. In other words, if you you were to convert the the senior preferred, the government really owns uh, 100% of these companies. The government takes 100% of the earnings of these companies every quarter. You know, it, in in the past, it was given that in cash. Presently, they get it's been the government takes that money in in form of uh, of a debt uh, obligation. So, but but the bottom line is, you know, if you take a look at the income statement of Fannie Mae or Freddie Mac, you will see a, a, a line very clearly saying the dividend. That dividend goes to the United States government, and it's 100% of the earnings of these companies. And by the way, uh, if you look at the balance sheet of the Federal Reserve. Uh, which obviously is a different entity, same, says shows the same thing. The Federal Reserve gives 100%, 99%, usually 99% of its profits to the U.S. government. So, so the U.S. government, you know, takes in the profits, has total ownership, but has no, it claims on its balance sheet, obligation for all the debt that's generated by by these companies or by well Ginny Mae is on the books of the US government uh, but you got the FHA you've got other you know G, uh, the VA you, you you've got you, you, section 8 you've got all these programs which you know the government has guaranteed and we don't see it anywhere 
when we take a look at the uh, published, you know, debt numbers of, of the United States government. And, you know, I I know f- from my perspective, I, I find it to be really upsetting that the U.S. government owns Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac totally, takes all of their profits and shows none of the debt of those two companies on the debt of the United States government, which I just think is is, is totally outrageous and incorrect. And and, and if you look at uh, what used to be called Sammy May, which was the student loan mortgage o- organization, although that's been changed dramatically from its beginning, it's the same deal there. And, and those are things that I know. I don't know exactly how these other areas work, but these, you know, accredited academic institutions, you know, have looked at them and come up with these huge numbers. So, you know, one might argue, yeah, we got $32 trillion in uh, stated debt, but the real debt is probably somewhat over $100 trillion. Because you said in your report, James Hamilton at the University of California did a lot of really good work on this. His numbers a decade ago suggested that off-balance sheet government obligations equaled six and a half times on balance sheet debt so that would take it to what 187 or nearly 200 trillion close to yeah, yeah, yeah. You, 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 these numbers go anywhere i want to impress before i go down this rabbit hole that just because i'm taking a position to to enhance this conversation doesn't mean i don't agree with you dick but if <laughs> if you were trying to um counter argue what you just said you know you're you're saying um, Fannie and Freddie are 100% owned by the U.S. government, therefore it should be on balance sheet. Well, they actually only own 79.9% specifically to keep it off balance sheet because the, it's still up to Congress. They can let the companies go. They can let the debt go. It's not written anywhere in stone, and there's not a court that would find it written somewhere that this debt is actually guaranteed. It's not. I I get that if they let these companies go, whew, that would be uh, that would make... You know, look the the um, you know, the Great Depression looked like a mole on your back compared to a death in the family. I mean, it's it's just nothing. It would be nothing if they let the companies go. But technically speaking, it's not on balance sheet debt, and it's not debt that the government actually owes. Um, the the same with Social Security, and Medicare. These are promises made to the population, paid for by the population. You know, by our elected representatives, we put this system in place to fund retirees after a certain age using you know current current workers income to fund a perpetual funding mechanism but you know every 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 election some person running for office learns the lesson of touching that third rail by proposing that we change them the idea that congressional candidates and presidential candidates are talking about reducing the benefits or reducing the financial obligation of the United States shows that this is not debt of the United States. Um, you know, you can make the same argument that you just made about Social Security with regards to defense. Is defense debt? No. Once a year, or sometimes less than, Congress gets together and passes an obscene budget because we you know we're 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 a defense industrial complex country. We're not a country that prioritizes our people, but they pass this budget every year. It's not debt. These are choices the government is making year by year to make our future lot in life worse, but they're doing it decisively through elections, through the elected elected representative process. And it's not, it's you know, the only debt that we actually have is the debt that shows up on balance sheet. The rest of it is a price we're all 
gambling once a year to renew and if it goes bad we're all going to pay the price but it doesn't and should not be on balance sheet well i i might take an issue with you on fannie and freddie because uh you know basically when both companies were created uh fannie mae was 100 percent owned by the united states government and it was willing to sell a portion of that ownership to the public uh in terms of uh, sh shares outstanding uh, but it retained, you know, the fact that it would uh, have uh, at that time, uh, I, I think it was $200 billion in, in terms of, uh, you know, guarantees behind the, the debt of Fannie Mae and the debt of the um, instruments that are created, you know, the mortgage-backed securities. And, you know, over time, you know, there was always this argument whether there was a, a, a stated or an implicit guarantee uh, to the debt of Fannie and Freddie. And then in 2008, it became evident that it was uh, stated in, in the sense that the United States government picked up ownership of the two companies pretty much again. I mean, the fact that it's 79.9% and, and there's debt on the balance sheet of the two companies, which is owed to the government that was, con that if it's converted, the, the way apparently the indenture of this de this debt, these participation certificates indicate the government would own 100%. But the point is, you know, the the whole society, the whole financial system operates under the assumption that the federal government is guaranteeing mortgage-backed securities issued by these two companies. There are regulations in the banking uh, sector which say that you can only own these instruments because they're guaranteed by the United States government. In other words, th there's a separation of what is guaranteed by the United States government and what is private sector guaranteed. So you can make a kind of an academic argument that, you know, the, the federal government doesn't, uh, is not on the hook for it, but th there's no way, there's no way you can make an argument in the courts or in, in the, in the ownership of the securities or in the regulations written by the, uh, the government that these things are not guaranteed by the United States government. I think that in the marketplace, if you were to argue that the U.S. government was not guaranteeing this debt, you know, you would see an, ex an explosion in the cost of mortgages and, and a reduction in housing costs. And, and you would get it. You would get one serious recession bordering on a depression. Uh, so, so I do think that they do. They have guaranteed that debt. So you're but talking here, Dick, about unfunded liabilities and you list student loan guarantees, insured bank deposits, Social Security, Medicare, U.S. effectively owned 79% or, or more of Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac. 100% of the profits of these companies goes to the federal government. All of their debt has been guaranteed by the U.S. government over $6 trillion. Quick question. I mean, some a lot of Social Security is effectively funded. So it's not, you know, some of this these liabilities have been funded. So I guess there has to be a kind of a distinction there too also. Yeah, there is assets, you know, the, there are assets that the United States government has, you know, and basically uh, what I'm saying, it, what I said a little bit earlier is that uh, some of these studies attempt to determine what the assets are of the United States government and what their liabilities are. And there, there's just not a match, you know, uh, the, the, the liabilities similar to the Federal Reserve. I mean, the assets of the Federal Reserve simply don't equal their liabilities. Um, so, you know, the government gets away with this uh, and, and it's not accounted for. And, and, and no one other than, you know, these academics, you know, raise the issue. I, I, 
I think we're just in semantics because I, I, as I said, I'm, I'm not advocating a position I believe, but you have technical rules that support the government keeping off balance sheet. Look, I think Fannie and Freddie, it's, it's nuanced a little bit differently than Social Security. But the outcome is still the same. A new Congress could come in. They could pass a bill that says, hey, we're Nero here. We're just washing our, not Nero, uh, Pontius Pilate. We're just washing our hands. Right. And uh, Nero describes our current Congress, <laughs> you know, playing the fiddle while everything's going to hell. Um, <laughs> but they could switch to Pontius Pilate and wash their hands and say, hey, we're passing a bill that Fannie and Freddie, you know, by the way, we're, we're just going to retire our shares. The public owns it and they're going to have to make it on their own. And, and, and that could happen. Unlikely unrealistic, but it's not the same as the Congress coming in and saying, hey, this debt that's guaranteed by our constitution um, is no, you know, the, the US Treasury debt that we've actually issued is we're quitting honoring it. Like that's unrealistic. And by the way, the other thing is they always have in the back of the tool, you know, the thing that made Ben Bernanke famous, the the helicopter Ben, you know, this is probably what's going to actually happen in the end. They're going to have to print the money and pay off the debt. And we're all going to pay for it through inflation. And it's going to be a regressive tax on the poor. And this is going to happen over decades. You know, look at what Japan is doing. They're basically transferring the debt of the Great Society and the debt of of the Baby Boom Society to the Gen Z, and and it's and eventually someone's you know going to have to pay the piper. But it's not going to be the current people who are benefiting from passing the buck. It's a frightening scenario. U.S. national debt of thirty one point four trillion, and that could rise higher. Matt, if your thesis comes true and there's more QE, which takes us to inflation, we could see um, challenges to inflation and that kind of a scenario. And uh, is inflation actually headed in the right direction? PCE. It's the price deflator. It's the price deflator. It's not coming in. And, it's personal yeah. consumption. Yeah. <laughs> it's not coming in. And you did some data on analysis on that, Dick, and the trend is not going in the right direction for our economy. Well, in, in the January figures, uh, you know, people were shocked to see that uh, the, the number was higher than the estimate and higher than the prior month's numbers. And that was the reason that the market was so, uh, you know, challenged in the last uh, few weeks, because basically uh, the expectation, you know, continues to be uh, in the marketplace that uh, this is a short term problem. It will be solved, that the Fed will not stay the game and that uh, basically money, money and, uh, you know, growth will uh, take up to where it was before this whole inflationary problem started. Um, the, the PCE numbers uh, indicated that that may not be true. And, you know, w unfortunately, the, the uh, government produces a monthly PCE number and it produces a um, quarterly PCE number. But it, it in both of those numbers, it doesn't break down the, the sub-segments of, of the uh, data the, the way the CPI does. However, the government also publishes an annual PCE number, which does break down the subsectors the way the, um, you know, the, the, the consumer protection, uh, the CPI is done. Um, and what, what it shows is that, uh, in terms of hard goods, you know, houses, cars, you know, inflation definitely has slowed down dramatically. Uh, in terms of, uh, you know, things like apparel, uh, you know, inflation has slowed down dramatically. In terms of all the services sectors, 
it's it's not slowing down at all it, and 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 that's where the problem arises and 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 powell is that's the numbers that powell is looking at uh, chairman powell is looking at when he basically says that you know we've got to see you know improvement in the service sector uh, and it's coming from the pce data and the pce data is saying inflation hasn't slowed so now you reach the issue of what do we do about it okay do, do we drive this economy into a recession which is what the, the Federal Reserve seems intent on doing, or will it be enough political backlash uh, from, you know, the Congress, from the population, uh, you know, riots in the streets, what have you, uh, that, you know, we, we, we cannot stand a recession, and therefore we're going to go back and print money uh, and let inflation run. Um, I, I think that if we take the easy way near term out and we say okay we're going to print the money we know the lesson right away inflation is going to pick up dramatically and you're going to get the riots in the street anyway because people's because what matt said is exactly correct you know it's it's a regressive tax on you know the poor and and basically they they're going to feel it badly and you know they're going to react to it so i'm taking the position that the fed cannot print money that they can't do it. Although in the last two weeks, they, they started printing. They actually started printing hard cash again. They cre- they printed $5 billion of it last week and $2 billion the week before that. And that, that kind of surprised me. But, but the point is, if they weaken, if they do what the market believes they're going to do, what I, apparently uh, other people here believe what they're going to do, uh, it, the price to the economy, to the, to, to the to, to households is going to be staggering. We, we cannot afford the government to print money. So overall PCE, the personal consumption expenditure index rose 5.4% in January from a year ago and 0.4% monthly. Um, so we're looking at further interest rate increases, Dick, right? Um, do, has, has your position on that change, is it, are, are it going to be much higher than you might have anticipated a year ago? Well, you know, Matt has said over and over again that you can only stop inflation if you have the interest rates higher than inflation. And and I think that statement is exactly correct. And I think that that's exactly what's going to happen, which means that if we're looking at five, five and a half percent PCE inflation, we're looking at six percent, you know, uh, interest costs. And, and I think that's where we're going. But more important than that, I think that um, when easing occurs, we're not going to get interest rates back down to four and a half percent. They're going to stay, you know, in that five percent range for, for I think, many years. I think that uh, if if you look at the underlying uh, movement of funds in the United States, if the United States financial system, you have to think of borrowing because borrowing is the creation of funds. Banks create funds just the way the Federal Reserve does. Uh, banks create money. Uh, they lend you five hundred bucks. They create 500 bucks out of uh, nowhere, uh, and and that increases the money supply. So I think that you know we are so far out on the limb, this country and every other country in the world, in in my view, uh, that you know we can't walk away from stopping this. Uh, and I think we're talking about being in another 30, 35 year cycle in which interest rates go up, you know, continuously. Uh, I mean, not continuously. There'll be periods in which they come down and then they go up. But I think they, they go up consistently. And, and I think that's the economy is going to have to live with the fact that there won't be as much money around as there has been in the past decade or two decades. And that 
all that money is going to cost a lot more. And therefore, all of the business ventures, all of the investment activities are going to have to take into account the fact that money is not cheap and it's not plentiful. And I think that's where we're going. I, I wonder how we're going to get there because what you're describing is a government that has to choose between which horse it's going to ride and only has one one behind to put on a horse. And it can choose to print money and and basically become Japan-like, or it can choose to defend the integrity of our budget process and try to increase revenue through taxation or other policies. Or maybe we get lucky and there's a productivity boom because of AI or something that's not quite on our horizon. Or they're going to have to reduce spending. You know, like you, you look at the last CBO report, um, and it came out about a week and a half ago. I referenced it last week. And, you know, you look and you're like, wow, if we could just go back to 2019 pre COVID spending, the government would be in surplus. Like we're only three years away from surplus, yet they're project- projecting $17 trillion which by the way was the the entire amount of debt going into the great financial crisis 17 trillion dollars of additional debt being added over the next 10 years because we have an imbalanced budget and you know you you're 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 saying well I think they're not going to print money I kind of disagree if you look at Washington and you look at the dysfunction in Washington you have a dysfunctional president uh, in my opinion I, I just don't think he's a leader and i think he doesn't really have a good grasp on the actual situation or maybe he does he just doesn't care you have a congress which apparently at least half of them think that not raising the debt ceiling and causing a fiscal crisis is a good idea they're not going to be able to solve this problem and every year we elect it seems dumber and dumber congressional leaders and and then you have the fed which is left with making the tough decisions and if their tough decision is oh, we're just not going to print the money and not buy the treasuries from the U.S. government and let everyone suffer. I, I think they're going to give. I think they're going to print the money. I mean, your your route depends on a coherent, leader-oriented, you know, thoughtful Congress passing bills that help the American people. And I just un- don't understand where you're getting that type of of crack or cocaine or whatever it is that's <laughs> too optimistic that Congress is going to save us. Bank analyst, I might add. <laughs> well, look, look, everything you say is correct. Uh, you know, there's no, if you will, historic evidence in the last uh, 20, 30 years that, the, you know, that this, uh, whoever the president is and whoever the Congress is, is uh, ready to, uh, you know, tighten the belt and, and deal with the pain that's going to come from tightening the belt. And therefore, the logical uh, assumption should be what you just said, that they were, they're not going to do it. Uh, and the market is saying this same thing. They're not going to do it. Uh, what I'm saying is 10% inflation is going to do it. Uh, that, in other words, what, what I'm assuming is that the power of making the decisions about you know inflation has been taken away from governments everywhere in the world. And that those governments are going to have to deal with the fact that if uh, inflation, you know, what is it, ninety six percent inflation? They were saying in Turkey, uh, you know, when they were talking about what have you know, sure, maybe we can go to ninety six percent inflation too. Maybe we can be like my Germany. Uh, you know, the fact of the matter is, or Zimbabwe, or Venezuela, you know, where everybody to say blinked is, is an understatement, simply says, okay, we don't care. Let inflation go wherever it's going to go. And then you have to have a pretty strong government to control the population, uh, you know, much stronger than, than the United States has been in that sense, thank God. Uh, but, but the point is, let them do it. If they do it, we're sunk. <laughs> That's my view. 
I mean, but but when you say that, it, what I what I hear is ten percent inflation is you know w- using my rule or the Taylor rule or it's seven years uh-huh. or whatever seven point two. Just go one year. You know, we recycle our debt. I believe on average every three. You know, our, our average duration of the U.S. government debt is like three years. If you had ten percent debt on thirty trillion dollars of debt, not and by the way. Social Security does, aside from my arg- previous argument that Congress renews it or could cancel it or change it or whatever, on a, on a normal course, it gets upgraded by by the amount of inflation. So you're talking about 10% increase to Social Security on top of 10% interest rates. That's You're, you're talking almost $4 trillion, which is basically the revenues of the United States going solely to interest and and and, and not counting Social Security debt defense or whatever. It's unaffordable. You you will break the system if we if we get to ten percent interest rates. It can't happen. You have to have yield curve control along with money printing to avoid that. And that's the worst, you know, not the worst case scenario, but the second worst case scenario. And it seems like that that's what we're on a you know a straight line path towards in my mind. Yeah, well, what you're saying is we need responsible government, which I agree <laughs> with. <you. laughs> that's, that's what you're saying. But the point is. Uh, if you get 10% inflation, uh, you're not going to reduce the Social Security program problem. You're going to increase it because, you know, the Social Security payments are tied to inflation. In 2023, uh, Social Security recipients, uh, of which I am one, you know, got an 8.2% increase in their, uh, in their uh, payments. So yeah, that's you- unaffordable. I-, I agree it's unaffordable. I- I'm going to so interject. Is- Dick deserves the 8.2. Sorry. <laughs> I certainly would like it. Liked it, uh, but anyway, the point is that uh, if you get inflation at ten percent, or fifteen percent, or twenty percent, then you know the government is going to have to step in and and say, uh, you know, w- we can't we can't afford this, and therefore we're going to cut social security payments in half or what have you. But but it, it has to be that bigger cut, you know. Uh, so you know, one way or the other you're going to come to the point where you are going to have to stop printing money and stop running massive government deficits uh, because, A, as you've clearly stated, and which is clearly correct, we cannot afford the current situation. And B, if we choose to ignore that and let inflation run, then we sure as hell will not be able to afford the, 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 the future situation one way or the other. You're going to come to the fact that you've got to get, you know, a, a rational financial system uh, in the United States, uh, you know, for the United States government, which we do not have at the present time. And of course, we never touched on in this episode consumer debt, which, which is at record highs at the moment. So there might be a case also for belt tightening among American consumers, but that's possibly for another episode. There was a very interesting um, numbers shared by uh, Warren Buffett in his most recent annual letter. During the decade ending in 2021, the United States Treasury received about $32.3 trillion in taxes while it spent $43.9 trillion. Of course, 2021 was a unique COVID year. He said Berkshire Hathaway uh, paid $32 billion in U.S. corporate income taxes during that same period. That's amazing. 
Well, yeah, Warren Buffett is actually under attack right now because uh, people are very unhappy with uh, the 10 Qs that he put out related to Berkshire Hathaway, in which he's uh, provided significantly less data about what he's doing and what his corporations are doing. Uh, he's uh, defending, you know, buying back stock as uh, I, I, he used some very negative word like incompetent for people who said that uh, companies shouldn't buy back stock. Uh, so, so, you know, he's, he, he's Warren Buffett appears to be significantly under pressure at the moment as a result of uh, what's going on. Uh, and, and, you know, as, as, as before this uh, conversation started, I mentioned to, to you, John, that, you know, I'm listening to the Goldman Sachs um, investor day and um, it, it's very, very disappointing to me, not because the speakers are, are, are not very competent and, and capable, uh, but, you know, we're, we're, Goldman Sachs is dealing with a world which is changing dramatically. Its earnings got hit really hard as a result of that change. And in every one of the presentations that they've made this morning, they've ignored it. And they simply talked as if there is no, uh, they, they say times are, you know, are, are, are troubled, but, you know, they haven't said how they're reacting to it, what they're doing about it. Just the way Warren Buffett is apparently not said how he's reacting to it and what he's doing to it. In other words, I think um you we're we're in the state right now where we're trying to ignore events we're trying to ignore the problems that matt mentioned and and the fact is that it if, if we continue to ignore them they're going to force us they're going to get worse and worse and they're going to force us to ultimately deal with them which is why i am looking for 35 years of interest rate increases uh you know uh, lower uh you know liquidity in the economy and 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 perhaps a slow growth economy for a while until we flip over to deciding that we got to stop consuming things and we got to start producing things question for Dick and Matt, you too, Matt, with rising interest rates and alternatives for investments. I mean, do you see investors moving more money away from stocks? Is that maybe what's happening in the market now and putting them into treasuries, CDs or whatever? It seems like almost like a more prudent investment approach in these treacherous times. Well, I mean, they, they are. They, they, money is moving. Uh, you know, I mean, you can't... Um, if, if a new tech company wants to come to market, you know, and, and, and uh, you know, sell $50 million worth of equity, the money's not there for them. They can't do it, right? Whereas, you know, a few years ago, obviously, that would be a chip shot and, and they could get the $50 million without any trouble. Uh, if a junk bond, uh, you know, company comes to market and wants to borrow a couple of hundred uh, million uh, the money isn't there. They can't get it. It's they, they, it's just gone. It's not going to be put there. So, you know, where is the money going? Well, right now, I mean, the, the, the Federal Reserve is giving them a, a tremendous opportunity to, to put their money to work in the repo market and to get extremely high returns relative to what they get in the bank or what they would have gotten in the stock market. So yeah, money is moving. Uh, we, we've got tangible evidence of the fact that it's moving. High yield, high, high, high investment grade debt 
is is finding a lot of buyers right now because you know people want safety they, they want safety for their money and they want a better return than they've been getting previously and there are places they can go to get it our offer obviously which we've mentioned over and over again is buy preferred stocks and banks you know you can actually get seven percent returns i mean going back to goldman sachs and, and again i cannot make a recommendation without a whole bunch of provisos but the fact of the matter is that you know goldman sachs has a preferred issue which yields has a coupon of five and a half percent in may goldman sachs is required to reset that payment that coupon the reset is to be three point uh, let's say 340 basis points above the uh the the three-month LIBOR rate that works out to be 8.4 percent so in three months from now if if you buy that Goldman Sachs preferred and Goldman Sachs doesn't call it that preferred is going to be yielding 8.4 percent now that's costly right <laughs> that's a good return uh in in, in in I mean Goldman Sachs is in all sorts of trouble right now with you know its core businesses uh but it's it's still one of the highest quality companies in the United States it has a balance sheet which is phenomenally strong uh it has you know a, a business model which you know it would take well there's only maybe one company in in the world that can replicate it and that's JP Morgan uh which has replicated it uh I don't even think Morgan Stanley has replicated Goldman Sachs's uh you know a business model but the point is you know you can get eight eight point four percent in May if Goldman doesn't call this thing 8.4% on a preferred stock which is backed by one of the most high quality companies in the country and you know therefore yeah money is moving uh, away from areas of risk and into areas of greater safety where the returns are starting to become appealing I mean you can get a, you can get a bank preferred there are a number of them in JP Morgan I mean JP Morgan has got over 4 trillion dollars in assets it's got hundreds of billions of dollars of cash it's got hundreds of billions of dollars invested in treasuries and you know they have securities out there which are yielding five and a half six percent I mean um and and you know if you, if you go down the the risk spectrum a little bit I mean you know US Bank Corp is the fifth largest bank in the United States you know PNC is the sixth largest bank in the United States they have preferred stocks which I'm not recommending this because I don't want to get into any trouble with the regulators uh but they have preferred stocks which yield over 6% I mean that I mean I I think what you're saying dick it, if i were to summarize it is there are a lot of yieldy and attractive opportunities out there right and when there's yieldy and attractive opportunities it makes speculative opportunities sorry yieldy attractive you know from sound financial institutions or sound financial governments as alternatives to risky opportunities like the stock market or hedge funds or you know speculation or options or whatever people used to do crypto you know back when money was was free um it makes those you know even riskier by by perception because there's less money out there chasing the riskiest opportunities because the safer opportunities provides significant return enough significant return that you don't you're not feeling like you have to chase return but what right. i think the real risk from a macro perspective is and this is something that you know you haven't you haven't heard um Powell talk about lately but before when back when he was on team transitory and don't worry about inflation even though it was seven percent in the summer of 2021 and he was acting like it's no big deal and it's going to go away and you were right and he was wrong 
um, back then, he was talking about the the risk of getting used to higher interest rates to the economy would be when people start getting used to, um, you know, getting four or five percent on on safe paper like two year treasuries or ten year treasuries or you know bank preferreds or anything that you know Fannie or Freddie, you know anything that looks like it's a safer investment, you can start making significant return and and you can sleep at night. You don't have to worry. You're going to get your yield. Then that that permanent mindset of we need higher interest rates can be really inhibiting to killing inflation because now people get stuck in the cycle that they deserve more. And if these are the same people that are paying 2.3% on their mortgage and they have a 30-year piece of debt, they're not going to be selling their house. They're not going to be paying down their mortgage quickly. They're going to be you know, milking that cow until the end of the, the mortgage period is up. And this becomes a real problem when you're a regulator trying to fix the economy. When you have consumers basically used to higher interest rates, you look at um, hourly pay across the United States and it seems like workers are getting used to pay increases and it becomes this inflation feedback loop that's really, really hard to break without basically imposing a recession a la you know, 1981, 1983 type stuff. Dick, you in the earlier episodes and subsequent to it got into a lot of detail and just want to bring it up now about the U.S., dollar as a reserve currency a really thought-provoking piece in the journal about uh, russia turns to china's one in effort to ditch the dollar they're cozying up russia and china in trade and it um, kind of supports your thesis in part that the dollar is coming under some some threat and we have to be nuanced about this you know it's not losing its status overnight or it may may never lose it in the near term but your thoughts would be very um would be welcome you know there's no question about the fact that the dollar still is the global reserve currency you know that that is a fact i mean and and uh, the issue is will it continue to be and and i do not believe it will continue to be because i believe that you know the strength of a nation's currency is backed by the strength of its uh, the the productive part of its economy, uh, and 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 you know if if you have a, a nation, uh, Spain in its day, Portugal in its day, you know England in its day, the United States in its day, when they were the most powerful, uh, if you will, factors in in the financial world as well. Portugal never, but all the other ones, the most powerful factor in the military area, you know, they have the reserve currency. And the fact is that we we are breaking up into spheres of influence in the world. I mean, we've got, you know, the North Atlantic group of which the United States is, is the biggest part. We've got, you know, the East Asian group of which China is emerging as, as the strongest factor. We've got the Eurasian group where Russia has a strong position. And now we've got the global South, which, uh, you know, is a new construct, which India is attempting to to run um when you have all of these new if you will influence centers and and there are you know more people in those centers than there are in the north well in the united states uh and they're producing more goods and they're generating more you know imports relative to what the united states is it is very hard to see any historical evidence of why 
uh, the United States would would keep the the world's reserve currency. It, it you know again, um, I think it's being chipped away at, but I I I still you know it's still very clear that the the United States dollar is the global reserve currency. Uh, when China lends money to uh, Kenya, it doesn't lend it in yuan; it lends it in dollars. Uh, so you know until that changes, you know the U- U.S. dollar is still paramount. Although I, I, I'm doing so much work on the Federal Reserve now, I'm going through their balance sheets back to 1995. They don't produce them prior to that date. And it's taking an enormous amount of time to do that. But it, it's leading me to believe <laughs> that cryptocurrencies may not be the worst solution in the world. Uh, you know, that cryptocurrencies do have an honest market uh, because, you know, the dollar is a cryptocurrency. I don't care w- w- what people want to say in terms of it's backed by the, the full faith and credit of the United States government. It's, you know, backed by the Federal Reserve. It's a cryptocurrency. Uh, and the only reason why that cryptocurrency works and other cryptocurrencies don't work is because everybody accepts this one and, and, and there's only a tiny group of people who accept the other ones. But if the United States doesn't do what you know, Matt says they won't do it. I'm saying they're going to be forced to do by events. You know, uh, the dollar will not maintain its primacy, in my view. Well, well I, I agree that they're going to have to do something, and you're saying they're going to be forced to. But let's be clear, when you say they, you mean the United States Congress and its president will right. be forced to make tough decisions, and they'll actually follow through and do it. And, <laughs> That's and what I'm saying. Yeah, yeah, and maybe maybe the example would be back in September of 2008 when you know the the it looked like we were having a financial crisis, and they came up with this TARP idea of like, hey, the government's going to bail out the banks, and it went to Congress, and Congress voted, and they're like, why on earth would we do this? And they voted it down. It, it got rejected. And the stock market, I mean, I'm going off memory, but I believe it tanked something like 15 or 20 percent over the next few days just on the basis of Congress saying we're not going to do anything. Yeah, and then it, lo and behold, it, everyone changed their vote and the exact same bill went it. through and, and passed and, and it began the recovery. Um, and so I guess you're kind of predicting some sort of really dire event that forces their hand before the Fed starts printing money and, and saving them from tough decision. Yeah. And I'm saying that event is excessive inflation. In other words, I'm saying... I'm saying there is a new power in the world, and that power is inflation. And that power cannot be controlled by any government anywhere, and it can't be controlled by a group of governments if all of these governments want to continue to do what they've been doing. Because you know you can't argue that the United States is unique in having this inflationary problem. It's probably unique in that the inflationary problem here is less than what it is in in, in Great Britain, or less than what it is in Spain, or less than what it is in in uh, you know uh, the, the Far East in many cases. Uh, but but the point is, you know, you can't defeat inflation by doing what we've done in the past. And and if people think they can, you know, we're going to have to suffer meaningfully, suffer meaningfully before uh, they do something about it. But they will ultimately be forced to do something about it. I mean, we keep talking about money printing and uh, easy money and QE and so on. But wasn't the government uh, between a rock and a hard place during the height of COVID and the financial crisis that if it didn't print this mountains of money, we risked a massive global depression. I mean, or should we take the pain, suck it up and get our finances in order? I mean, I guess they're the two stark choices. Yeah, I'm saying you're going to take the pain one way or the other. 
an interesting takeaway from the Wall Street Journal piece uh, on your reserve currency um, study stick. Uh, the Chinese currency's rise inside Russia deepens ties between two countries that have long rivaled each other for global influence, but have grown closer amid shared discontent with the West. It just points to all these tensions we're seeing and how the globe is bifurcated and divided. And it, these are these are difficult times to navigate for, for any nation. Well, that's why I, I put that, uh, that information about Senator Bora, you know, which if you don't mind, I'm going to spend a couple of minutes on, on history here. Uh, Senator Bora came from Idaho, and he was one of these uh, very big, powerful uh, men, big, powerful speakers, uh, you know, similar to Daniel Webster or uh, Jennings Bryan, William Jennings Bryan. Uh, and he, he he had a very dominant position in, in the Senate. He also, um, you know, although he was married, had an affair with uh, Alice Roosevelt, uh, you know, the daughter of Teddy Roosevelt, and they had a child together. And basically, she, you know, was the focus, focal point of all the Rooseveltian feeling, you know, from Teddy Roosevelt on up to, the, you know, the, uh, until Franklin Roosevelt came along. So basically, uh, she backed Bora for president, and and Bora, you know, was in contention uh, to get the nomination to to run for president. Um, you know, and, and ultimately, I, I assume the scandal, you know, killed the whole situation. But um, this very powerful guy, you know, believed that Hitler could be appeased, and he believed that number one, that the immigration policy uh, of uh, the United States to, to accept the Jews from Germany was a huge mistake, should be stopped. He believed that, you know, all of the, uh, if you will, colonies that Germany had before World War One should be given back to World War One, And he believed that if he could go to, uh, to, to Berlin and talk to Hitler, Hitler would abandon all of his uh, all of his uh, you know programs to to conquer everywhere and and the germans you know actually put up the money to have him go to germany uh, and speak to hitler when he had a heart attack uh, in his sleep and died so 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 the point is that feeling that you can that you can get very powerful people who believe that you can appease dictators who are mass murderers in my view like Putin, like Xi Jinping, uh, you know, I, I think is is growing in the United States again. The feeling that you can appease these people, give them some of the things that they want, and they'll stop. They don't stop. They continue to want more and more and more. And I think that that's, that's an issue which is going to be very big in the United States over the next 12 months as we decide whether we want to walk away from Ukraine, give it to Russia, let them take Poland, let them take Moldova, let them take, you know, a whole bunch of the things that were once part of Imperial Russia, uh, Latvia, Lithuania, Estonia, who gives a damn about them? You know, let them have all that stuff. And then he'll stop, but he won't stop. Uh, there's no there's no evidence of any Russian czar who ever stopped until he died or was beaten on the battlefield. Uh, and there's these dictators that we saw in the 1930s. You know, they they basically wouldn't stop. You know, Mussolini couldn't go into Europe, so he starts killing people in in North Africa, uh, and, and and he goes there. I don't think Putin can be stopped. I think this is going to become a big discussion, you know, going forward in this country. And I think that uh, Senator Bora 
Senator Boris should be used as an example of someone who is powerful, intelligent, capable, could have been the president of the United States. Maybe he would never have gotten elected, but he could have could have made it, uh, who believed that Hitler, you know, could be talked to and stopped. You know, I, I don't I think that uh, it's it's a fantasy. Well, the, the I, one I, thing I, that Putin has gone, he's still standing. I mean, there's been no, let's hope it all ends very soon. But he's in his palace. Uh, Moscow hasn't been touched or Russia hasn't been touched. Uh, if there's an invasion of Poland, then, Dick, then I think, uh, you know, games, you know, games over. I mean, the EU gets involved, NATO gets involved. I mean, that's just um, would be a, an extraordinary situation, which... I mean, I guess in theory it could happen, but we don't know how any of these wars end up or finish, and there's all kinds of strange scenarios can occur. I want to point out that Dick's scenario where, you know, Latvia goes and Lithuania goes and Poland goes, like, that is so far fantastical because what what you're basically doing is basically announcing to the world that America doesn't matter anymore. We're no longer standing by our friends. Our dollar probably isn't worth anything. Our debts aren't probably worth anything. Our friendship isn't worth anything. NATO alliance isn't worth anything. Um, security guarantees aren't worth anything. Like you can go down the list of how awful that would be. America, as much as we complain about, we don't have the leadership right now, and it, it just seems unrealistic that we would ever go against our NATO treaties um, and obligations. And further, I, I, you know, I'm still waiting for the day, and maybe they have it in their back pocket, and they'll use it when they need it. Joe Biden hasn't sat in the Oval Office and given, you know, behind the Resolute desk and and given us a speech as to what we're doing. You know, what is the strategy? Why is America in this fight? You know, Ronald Reagan used to do that. Johnson did that. Kennedy did that. Like you go and you tell the people, this is our fight. This is why it's our fight. This is why it's so important. This is why we have to spend our treasure and and our, you know, risk our security alliances because this is this is the fight for life. And if we don't win it, then we're giving up and we have to fight it. And I'm, and they haven't done that speech yet, but I think a good leader and a good president and Biden could turn into one. I mean, you know, it, it's not too late, but we do need to have that to rally the people because the Ukrainian cause ultimately, if, if we're talking about Ukraine and it's just Ukraine, I guess, but everyone th- seems to think if you let Putin win in Ukraine, then, you know, that's, that's just the opening the door for further aggression. And so if that's true, you have to up in Ukraine and you have to rally the people. You cannot give up. You can never, ever stop. No, what you said is really important. I mean, the Russians and the Chinese have defined clearly for their populations why they're doing what they're doing. We have not defined for this population why we're doing what we're doing. And the leaders in Western Europe have not defined for their population why, you know, they're doing what they're doing. And the failure to do that is 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 i think going to be devastatingly bad biden must do what you said uh, he must define for the american people why we're spending so much money so many tax dollars in uh in ukraine why it's so uh valuable not as ukraine but as western europe uh, why we are doing what we're doing and and he hasn't done it. He hasn't done it. And you're absolutely right. He has to do it. He has to do it. We keep talking about leadership. Matt brings it up in you, Dick. Uh, we don't have strong leaders. Uh, on your appeasement um, mentioned there, Dick, you had Neville Chamberlain it comes to mind as well. Um, he tried to appease Hitler. We saw where that went. But also in these uncertain and dark times, don't strong leaders sometimes 
history shows us that strong leaders emerge. We may not have them now, but the public will become so restive and volatile that they will put stronger leaders, whether they're good or bad, we don't know. And that's, you know, another um, problematic issue. But hopefully they'll be good leaders who will take on and uh, preserve democracy and free enterprise. Well, again, that's my theory. My theory is things get so bad that all of a sudden they get good. (laughs) (laughs) It's always darkest before dawn theory. Well, I guess, I guess, but it's that uh, you know, you know, and it's going to get bad, I think, and that's that's scary to me. In fact, you know, just one last thought, you know, and that is that you know, w- when you get older, older people always think that things were better when they were younger, and mm. they don't realize that they were better because they had no responsibilities when they were younger, but that, that things have, have never changed from when they got younger to now. But uh, so maybe uh, I'm giving you too much negativity here. Uh, because I'm not a young person. Okay, well, on that note, some positives, some negatives, but it's sunny in Florida, Dick. That's a hopeful note. It's still uh, blanketed with snow up here in the Northeast. Um, But we'll come back to more topics and uh, look at the economy again next week for episode 59. And until then, take care. Thank you for those insights earlier, Dick. And for our listeners, it's important to understand that as of today's recording, February the 28th, 2023, neither Dick nor any member of his household has a financial interest in the debt or equity or preferred securities of any of the companies referred to on this episode and has not received any compensation from these companies in the past 12 months. In addition, Odeon has not received any compensation from these companies and these companies are not investment banking clients of the firm. Dick's written reports on any of these companies he covers are available to institutional customers of Odeon at insight.odeoncap.com and additional important disclosures are available to the public generally at odeoncap.com forward slash legal under the research disclosures tab all investing involves risk and you should consider those risks and your personal financial objectives before making investment decisions current and future holdings are subject to risk and past performance is no guarantee of future results this podcast should not be copied distributed published or reproduced in whole or in part Information presented herein is for discussion and illustrative purposes only and is not a recommendation or an offer or solicitation to buy or sell any securities. Securities identified do not represent all of the securities purchased, sold, or recommended to clients. The views and opinions expressed by the Odeon Capital Group speaker are their own as of the date of the recording. Any such views are subject to change at any time based upon market or other conditions and Odeon Capital Group disclaims any responsibility to update such views. These views should not be relied on as investment advice, and because investment decisions are based on numerous factors, may not be relied on as an indication of trading intent on behalf of any Odeon Capital Group product. Neither Odeon Capital Group nor the speakers can be held responsible for any direct or incidental loss incurred by applying any of the information offered.